in dieser sich ändernden Welt, wie garantieren wir unsere Sicherheit? Wie schaffen wir es als Europäer, dafür zu sorgen, dass wir sicher leben können? Ce qui manque le plus à l'Europe aujourd'hui, à cette Europe de la défense, c'est une culture stratégique commune. The rise of China matters for all NATO allies. The Defense Café, a podcast by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. Hello everyone and welcome to the Defense Café, the liberal security and defense podcast from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation in Brussels. My name is Jürgen Dobber from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. And I'm Theresa Reiter in Vienna. Our guest today is Alexandre Kraus. He is the staff expert of the European Liberal Family for the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. He has been in this position for seven years. He has a book coming out, which he will also tell you about in our conversation. And Alexander is just a, a really cool guy who knows a lot about absolutely everything. Yeah, indeed. And with uh, with Alexander, we will be talking about the NATO summit that took place in June this year, um, EU-NATO relations and the idea of European strategic autonomy and NATO's new focus on East and Southeast Asia. Hi, Alexander. How are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you both today. We invited you to talk with us a bit more about NATO. There have been a lot of different discussions uh, or developments going on lately, and you are the liberal NATO expert. So we wanted to hear a bit more from you, what we can expect there coming up in the in the future. So yeah, let's get started straight away. We had a summit, a NATO summit on the 14th of June here in Brussels, apparently quite different in tone and also in substance uh, to, the, to the Trump years under the Biden presidency that has changed. We're not quite sure how much, because the difficult discussions don't seem to be gone uh, yet. Could you uh, bring us up to speed on what happened there, why it was such an important summit and um, what happened at the summit? Well, again, thank you for your kind invitation. Well, I'm liberal for sure, expert we will see at the end if I'm expert or not. Yeah, I think above all, this, the, the summit was a change of tone. Like uh, President Biden said, it, America is back. The return of decency to the talk of a good diplomatic posture. We don't see a president now pushing another president for the photo op in the, the summit. So I think this represented definitely a positive U-turn in the way the former U.S. administration was building or keeping the, the relations with NATO. Said that, I think there's nothing dramatically changing because the path regarding how the U.S. has been engaging and trying to fulfill their agenda with NATO has not really changed since uh, Bush's son administration, and it carried throughout the Obama administration. The United States have the goals in terms of geopolitics have changed for the United States. It's no longer Europe. They are really focusing now in, the, in Asia, in the Southeast Asia. This is their main challenge at this point. Of course, we will discuss China at a certain point in this podcast, but China is a massive of massive concern. One very important point in the agenda that was discussed, it's not very public, is uh, the Middle East. Europe will take over uh, somehow uh, the engagement with the Middle East. Of course, it was very positive, the developments that are still taking place. Even today we speak, there was the opening of the, the Emirates Embassy in Israel. So this is a very interesting fact. Things are changing also in the Middle East. Let's see if this will crystallize and things will, will move in a positive way. But yes, there is the assumption that Europe might have a leading role now in the future in the Middle East, and this will ease the Americans to do other projects. One of the main uh, issues continues to be, of course, 
the two percent threshold that uh, all member states have to bring on board. Uh, the pressure is there. Uh, it's less public, but the pressure is there, and the Secretary General addresses that in his uh, NATO 2030 document, of course, because this is necessary to fulfill a bit uh, the domestic agenda of the Americans. Another thing that I think was extremely positive is to address the cyber threats in a much uh, clearer way, and um, this was a very positive point to identify cyber threats uh, and cybersecurity and cyber defense as one of the cores of NATO for the future. This is also positive by default to European Union that has been able to introduce high level of cooperation and efficient cooperation with NATO. So this will play a role in the future. And as a consequence, identifying also who are the main actors, being state actors and non-state actors that are triggering all these cyber uh, threats. It's a very, very liquid uh, mix uh, when we talk about cybersecurity and cyber defense. Even yesterday, the Russian ransom uh, websites were vanished from it, out of the blue. And if you think that basically the meeting in Geneva with uh, Biden and Putin was three, four weeks ago, where this was a topic of discussion, and suddenly these websites are miraculously gone, one might think that, okay, this might be a consequence of that conversation that they had. We shall see. I don't trust the Russians, so it might be just they are changing servers. I don't know. I would say that uh, these are the main things that uh, took place there uh, in my perspective. Nothing dramatic happened. Again, it was more about bringing back confettis to the discussion and nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Let's see what will uh, come up next. Yeah, thanks. And I think nothing dramatic is already a good thing uh, compared to some of the previous uh, summits. I think you touched upon quite a lot of issues that we wanted to discuss already, the China, cyber, Russia already. Teresa, you wanted to bring up a question straight away already? Uh, yes, uh, I have a question concerning the complex cyber issues. Um, I actually have two questions. One, can you be a bit more specific what kind of threats they were identifying to be the most impactful, just to get a bit of a better picture what they were actually talking about? And the other thing is, um, within NATO, is there an understanding between the US and other NATO partners what the rules are between them concerning cybersecurity? Because um, we have learned quite recently that it's not really um, clear when the US gets to take out the European server and what would happen if we do that in the US and what conditions have to be met to actually um, do that without notice. Can you tell us a bit about that? I think it's more ad hoc, the way they are doing the access and, and they decide how to proceed. And you need really uh, someone in the driving seat. But as there are so many layers of threats at this point, uh, it's very difficult to coordinate. Even if we talk about how the, the European bloc is coordinating all of this, even though there is already one or two core organizations operating, it's always very difficult. Because if we talk about, and we can now address a bit your first question, talk about threats, and threats is not a ransomware. It's more about like infrastructures, key infrastructures in a country, like the electric grid, for instance. We all remember what happened in Ukraine many years ago, and that was dramatic. And this is a possibility, and this can happen. And we saw what happened in the United States a few weeks ago also with attack on uh, infrastructure. So these are issues, very clear issues, that represent an act of war. 
if you think about it, to disconnect the national grid is an act of war. It's pure sabotage. And this is part of the new warfare dimension that uh, we've been acknowledging in the last years and that we try to hybrid threats and all this technical language that uh, people use in the political and in the academic uh, world. But this is a reality. Is how can we protect our core infrastructures? And these infrastructures can be public infrastructure, military infrastructure, or private infrastructures to be targeted by state or non-state actors. And this is very difficult to coordinate. So basically, you have in place defense layers in each member state. They are interconnected from member state to member state in terms of alert. But the member state of NATO decides how to operate at a certain point. So there is no full coordination. The Defense Cafe. How is this, um, Alexander, coming back to NATO there? There's also a kind of strategic reorientation going on. So I think last year there was the NATO 2030 report that was published with a series of recommendations. And I think at the summit now there were also talks of updating the NATO strategic concept. Big question is, of course, uh, what what will that contain? Will this cyber dimension, is that reflected in those discussions? And what else can we expect from that kind of strategic reorientation of NATO? Yes, the technological, let's call it the technological dimension is there for sure. It's a pillar that is gaining more and more importance. But all this reorganization, all this new vision, I think, is to address some key political uh, questions. NATO, it's a, a longstanding organization that was raised during the Cold War to address specific reality, and things have changed since day one. And today, the main threats to the NATO countries are slightly different from the ones in the past. So there is also this concern to geopolitically address the future. But NATO is attached to the North Atlantic dimension. And this is the problem. How can you bring a new orientation to such an organization that was the way it was raised was so vertical, so, you know, very capular. And now we have to think about different areas in the globe. How can NATO move the campus to a different latitude? So you need to build a narrative. You need to build a rational to enable this and to make everybody comfortable as well. Don't forget that today NATO faces some internal, you know, frictions between some member states. Let's just say Greece and Turkey. And you know what is in cause. It's a difficult problem to address internally. You know? We all remember what happened in the summer of 2020 when uh, Turkish Navy decided to go for a spin in the Mediterranean. And uh, it was chaos. For almost uh, the end of August till the end of September, it was a very difficult situation. The pressure was unbelievable. And this is a problem. But going back to your question, there are political issues that has to be addressed. There are new partnerships with third countries that are being improved. Israel, for instance, is one of these countries where clearly there is a will from NATO HQ to coordinate and to engage in a different way with Israel. And we continue to listen that uh, Japan has interest to do some exercises with NATO, Australia. So you see, you need a backup, you need a political background and a political justification to start bringing new actors into the mix. That's why I think the report 2030, uh, and it was the Secretary General that uh, took over this, I would say, very ambitious project, uh, was so important, not only to reinforce the the standing uh, working pillars in NATO, 
like coordination, deterrence, now the, the cyber dimension, resilience, uh, capacity building, etc. But also to introduce one or two new elements that will be the genesis of a potential new dimension of NATO in the next decade, I would say. The Defense Café. Thanks, Alexander. Do you think there is enough appetite for all these reforms? What, uh, How likely uh, do you think that the recommendations from that 2030 report, that they are actually taken on board? Well, part of these uh, new elements, they basically represent the will and the wishes of the shopping list on the other side of the Atlantic. Canada and the United States, they share a lot of these uh, concerns. So these concerns were introduced to this new agenda. On our side here in Europe, I would uh, say that we have the majority of the member states, NATO member states are okay with this. But of course, you have France that always has a different approach on NATO and they think in a different way. They are much more focused, for instance, to develop European defense in a much more you know, bolder way. Uh, they are the ones that really love to use the strategic autonomy, EU strategic autonomy dimension. And we will touch this later, maybe. And then we have Turkey. Turkey that has been, you know, in a very dodgy place lately and they lost a lot of trust within the organization. But they are the second largest army inside NATO and this has a tremendous weight at the end of the day. But I would say overall, I think there is a consensus to reform a bit the mission of NATO, to upgrade it, to expand a bit the scope regarding the future. If you don't have any further questions on this, Zeron, um, I would like to move on to the strategic autonomy. Um, you have mentioned this a few times and we thought uh, you were the right person to actually explain to our listener what it is. <laughs> what what uh, do we mean about strategic autonomy uh, in Europe? And I mean, is this just, are we just talking about this because we have absolutely no other choice with the US uh, refocusing on other parts of the world? We had these conversations for years, right? When we always said like, we have to pay for our own security. We have to take responsibility for our own security. But this conversation has been around for a very long time. And it never really felt like we're getting there. And now we have this fancy word for it. Um, we're calling it strategic autonomy now. But what does it actually mean? Who came up with it? What does it mean? Well, uh, it's time for the animal question now. The strategic autonomy is, is, is a confluence of, of, of a desire of... Uh, you know, a tangible European defense. In 2016, I had the privilege to work together with uh, Urmas Pet, the, the former foreign affairs minister from Estonia, and he was the European Parliament rapporteur on the European Defense Union. Uh, this was a very, you know, epic moment for all of us that uh, work in defense. And we were already talking about strategic autonomy. And I remember we had a lot of talks, and uh, we often would say we need a smart agenda for European defense. Because if you want to immediately talk about the European army, like our former president in the European Parliament did uh, so often, and I will not talk about what I think, this is too political to mention my, my opinion on this, but if you set up a smart roadmap and you fulfill all the stages, then there are things that will pop up naturally like the European army. But we are very far away from that. We are very far away from that because we have countries like France, like the Netherlands and others, 
the Netherlands, they love NATO and they don't invest too much in European defense. They don't see the purpose. They think that should be, you know, full cooperation and not in competition. Strategic autonomy comes from countries like uh, Germany, like France, uh, the Spanish, even though they are very attached to NATO, they understand and they, they support. And basically, it's the old dream that uh, the European will be autosufficient. We will have a dimension, an industrial dimension, a procured dimension. Basically, in one word, like I said uh, many years ago in the Congress of the European Liberals in Warsaw, it's the quest to reach a single helmet. You know, imagine that all European armies would have the same helmet, the same design, the same color, a single producer. The impact would be would be very interesting. So this is the goal. It's basically to make, to bring a de facto European defense dimension into the table with capability, with industry, with research, with innovation, etc. So this is the ball game. Now, does the United States like this? Nope, they don't. Uh, in 2019, I had a series of talks on a political on a mission from the European Parliament in Washington, D.C., and we had a, a very interesting discussion in the State uh, Department and with the defense, and they were like, we don't understand what is this strategic autonomy you guys are talking about. This means that you will not buy any more stuff from us. Because we buy a lot of stuff from you. And the guy mentioned a number that was ridiculous, like, like nothing special. And uh, one of the members of the European Parliament delegation just said, but that equals to three F-35s. And the European member states bought, I don't know how many, dozens of them. So we don't understand what you're saying. So you see, even the Americans uh, in DC, they don't understand fully what is strategic autonomy. So they act in a very strange way towards it. But it's necessary for Europe at the end of the day to have full capability to develop the defense industry, defense solutions, and further integrate between member states' defense. And I think this will serve NATO at a certain stage. I hope that I was clear. That was actually quite clear. Is this uh, attitude of the US, is this only an industry question and a money question? Because at the same time, you were saying uh, they're pulling out of Europe a little bit, they're refocusing. They have been telling us for uh, decades that we have to um, pay for it, for our own security. And at the same time, they don't want us to have strategic autonomy. Um, how does this work in the US perception? Yeah, o overwhelmingly, it's about money. Okay. If you see uh, the United States in their 50 states, every state has a lot of companies attached to military. If, uh, for instance, the defense decides to build a new, I don't know, missile, they will do a public uh, competition and you will see that missile will have components that will come from 20 or 30 different states. And this is part of the bargaining. And this is the part where they increase times 10, sometimes the same product, because they have to, you know, bring a bit of money to every single state. So it's about business, it's about jobs, it's about, you know, to keep the number one position in the rank of research, development and armament production. The Defense Cafe. Do we have this conversation with other countries as well? Other third states? Who else is reacting to this concept? Well, that's the thing. With all these new layers of defense that we've been introducing lately since 2016, when we talk, for instance, about research and development attached to defense, pilot projects, etc. 
there are visions that EU companies can work with third countries companies. Well, third countries that are within a list that they are our friends, they are our allies, of course. And the US is there, definitely. This was very clear that they have to be there. But this also opens doors that we can uh, work uh, with uh, companies from Israel or from, uh, I don't know, other countries. So this is there. But of course, in a completely different scale. So what the different US administrations try to do over and over and over is to constrain to the maximum EU's capability to deploy and trigger new dimensions and to increase the pipeline. You know, the US have uh, like five models of helicopters. We have 15. So what we are trying to do is scale economies. It's to reduce the amount of equipment that we produce in Europe and to concentrate to only produce like two or three. This will be cheaper for every member state. And this will also be positive for NATO at the end of the day. But on the other side, the United States, of course, they want us to continue to buy from them or to supply in majority with their own products. So, yes, it's trade, it's market, it's jobs, it's, uh, it's money at the end of the day. Yeah, interesting. And then apart from that defense industrial uh, dimension, I think also with NATO, it's quite interesting to see the institutional dimension there as well, of course. And you mentioned it a bit before, this uh, kind of uh, cooperation, not competition, that there are some member states uh, or member nations of NATO that, that are on that track. Where uh, do you see that also, that risk of competition? Do you see that coming up? What do you see as areas where the cooperation is developing well? But are there also areas where you see certain competition coming up? Well, I think we are still in a very positive phase. We spoke about cyber threats and cyber cooperation. I think between NATO and EU, things are going extremely well. Another important dimension is it's being developed as we speak is military mobility. And uh, this was a very fast process. And this is really, really important. If you see in the northern flank what is happening with ongoing incursions of the Russian uh, Air Force and uh, yeah, similar things happening there, it's very important that member states, NATO member states, can deploy their assets to support, to back up different member states or even to only do exercises. Military mobility uh, was introduced and in full cooperation with the European Union because the majority of the member states belongs to the European Union. So if the European Union agrees to develop a series of policies that will enable armies to cross over each country in an easier way without the need to wait two weeks in the border to go through and to be escorted and blah, 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 this is very helpful for everything. So I think we are still building up and taking advantage where we can work together, not overlapping, but we will reach a point, maybe in 10 years, I don't know, where there will start to be some clashing because it's impossible to avoid. But I believe there are smart people ahead of both organizations and they will try to the limit to, to avoid this clash. Okay, thanks. I think that gives a pretty good idea of also where this uh, is heading and where it could be heading. Alexandra, you have uh, worked on a book uh, for the past, um, well, knowing your schedules, uh, years probably. <laughs> um, what is it about? Can you tell us a little bit about it? And um, well... Is it already on the market or when can we expect it? Well, it's my Corona book. I started to write in March of 2020. It's about the transatlantic uh, relations. It's called The Cold Alliance. Of course, full inspiring Trump's uh, <laughs> position on Europe, but revisits a bit the past how transatlantic relations developed through the decades. It doesn't stay too long in the past. 
and addresses the present challenge and the future challenges. And, uh, well, it will be published very soon, hopefully. It's up-to-dated. The last update was done before it went to the publishing house. So we were already over the first 100 days of the Biden administration were already over. So it's quite up-to-date. It's a simple, uh, easy-reading book. Well, it's a book for non-academic people or uh, people that really like uh, technical details. I think the main goal was to inform people and to allow them to have a, a different perspective that is very factual. It's not uh, blah, blah, blah. And that, yes, I use my years of work and know-how and my sources, books, articles to base part of the content, definitely. When it will be on sale, I don't know. You should track my uh, Twitter account at Alexander Kraus, and uh, maybe you will see the cover soon there. That's an excellent recommendation. Anyway, uh, follow Alexander on Twitter. He's always there. I'll send you a couple of copies to you guys. Yes, I will read your book uh, and then tell to our listener whether it's really not blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to it. We will put a link to the book in the show notes as well once it's published. Uh, so then our listeners can uh, can look it up there. Thanks. So uh, looking forward to it. And then before we let you go, because we're running out of time, but uh, there's always time for a final question. And as always, that is our animal question. And we'll have to ask it uh, to you as well. So the question is, if European defense policy would be an animal, what animal would it be, according to you? Uh, a sloth. A sloth, okay. Because basically that's like, you know, like it's there, exists, it's big, it's different, but moves very slowly. So I think it's the best one that I can come up. I'm sorry. Maybe you wanted some more exotic stuff, but. <laughs> ah, I like it, the sloth. It's, uh, it's quite peaceful as well. Yes, yes. Uh, I like the sloth as well. Uh, but what, what you probably don't know about sloths, I mean, they, they are basically their own ecosystem. Things grow on them. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. European Union, yeah. you know, bubble. Absolutely. Without, yeah. so, so. Well, that part, I'll be honest with you, I was not aware of that, but I was just on the motion uh, part. Yeah, good, Teresa. You just uh, complete my note on this. <laughs> oh, I'm correct. Definitely correct. On this. <laughs> so it's a sloth now. If you could think of where it should develop in the future, what should it be? What kind of animal? A dolphin, for sure. A dolphin, okay. Dolphin is... <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Super nice, <laughs> intelligent. He has killer instinct if he has to do it as well. You know, it's it's not the shark. The dolphin has more brains than the, the, the shark in this sense. And you know, it's it's a nice animal. That has to be one of my favorite answers to the animal questions, definitely. We are saying goodbye to you today. We will be back in fall. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it already. Thank you all for listening. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and rate us on the channel that you've been uh, listening to. And uh, see you back in autumn.